0: Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. We're the Nelsons, I'm Sean,
1: and I'm Lynette. Today we are so excited to share an interview with Joseph and Melissa. We are actually old friends with Joseph and Melissa. We knew them before any of us had kids, and now they are the parents of eight kids, and they're incredible, oh my goodness, but they have built their family in many ways. They have some biological kids, they have some kids who were adopted, as infants and they also have some kids who they are fostering who they're planning on adopting and they are just incredible parenting all of these kids and involving all of their biological families.
0: I really just love that they have so much experience and so many aspects of raising children and bringing children into their family and they do a great job at articulating the awesome nature that that is of just having this great big family, but they also are really authentic and sharing what challenges and struggles kind of come along with adding children in different ways and also having a larger family.
1: Yeah, and just juggling these different kinds of open adoption relationships, different levels of openness, and what that looks like with foster kids too.
0: So here we go, we'll jump right to our interview with Melissa and Joseph.
1: All right, so we are here on the podcast with Melissa and Joseph. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Hey! Hey. So
2: good to be here.
3: Yeah, super excited.
1: Uh, Thank you. So to start off, can we have you introduce yourselves to us?
3: Sure. We'll let Melissa go first.
1: So I'm Melissa. Um,
2: We are parents of eight children. Joseph and I met in the foreign language dorms. I majored in Spanish, and he majored in Middle Eastern Studies and Arabic something fun about us is we like to make chocolate from scratch. It's One of our favorite things to do. And I literally eat a chocolate bar every day.
1: I love it.
3: And we've had some of that chocolate and it's
0: amazing.
2: It's
1: really good.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I don't, my nose doesn't function very well. It's like 50% smelling capacity. At least that's what the doctor said. And I remember the first time I walked into a chocolate shop and it was like, hearing a symphony inside my nose. It's like the first time I'd been able to smell that well. And I just remember turning to Melissa and saying, some people have wine cellars, we shall have a chocolate cellar. <laughs> so we're, we're slowly but surely getting there.
0: <laughs> That's so awesome. Anything else you would share about your, you guys or your family, introduction-wise?
2: There's eight kids and they're young. Our oldest is nine and our youngest is four months and we built through a combination of biological children, domestic adoption, and foster to adopt. So
3: yeah, so uh, our oldest two are biological. It was kind of interesting. This never came, we never planned this. I I think that's the (laughs) biggest, that's the funniest thing about this is that it was kind of one surprise after another to a degree. It took us forever for our first, uh, our first child. And then, so we thought it would take some time like that for the second and he came super fast. Um, But with Melissa needing to be on bed rest for each pregnancy, doctors weren't sure if we should have any
2: more. My first child, our first child, severe preeclampsia, just showed up at 36 weeks, went to my appointment, delivered a baby that night, right? And it was our first, so they didn't really think it would happen again. But with our second, it showed up at 24 weeks. We were lucky enough that between medications and interventions, I stayed at the hospital until 35 weeks. And we delivered then when things started getting really bad, like they were able to do that, which was amazing, but it was still three months in the hospital, which was so hard. It was so hard because you were in the Air Force, Lydia was little and we couldn't take care of her. And he was training. So after that, they, you're highly discouraged from having more children because the preeclampsia tends to show up earlier and stronger with each child. After we had Hiram, our second, message Lynette and I said, hey, how, how do you do this adoption thing? What does it even look like? And she just kind of gave me a rundown and told me what to look for. So when we moved to Wyoming, I actually looked up agencies and it was a very easy choice because there was one for the (laughs) entire state, which kind of blows my mind. But
3: well, I mean, there's not a whole lot of people.
2: There really isn't. The one blows them away. (laughs) Like the the foster care system only had like 30 kids in it. It was not Um, a lot. And so very few. So we that made our choice easy. It was at that point, we're kind of thinking, well, we'll try We honestly were not sure what was going to happen. We found an agency, we did a home study, and we chose domestic infant adoption because we were Air Force. We knew foster care could take a long time. That's what people had told us. And with Joseph's particular career, we could move at any time. And so we wanted to be able to do it from wherever we were and not Have to take kids with us or lose kids because we were moving. We built a blog and got the word out. But really, the truth is, none of that made a difference because it was a family member. Her best friend's little sister found out she was having twins at 33 weeks. So originally, she was in denial about the pregnancy until their family kind of had an intervention because at some point it was obvious that she was very pregnant right so they took them into one of those sonographers off the street so like a fetal photos find out the gender kind of thing that's when she found out she was 33 weeks along with twins that night she goes and tells the dad who really wanted no part in it so when she suggested adoption he was for it and she had decided that she wasn't in a place to raise children even though she was older, I think that was part of it. she was actually much older and she decided to place my aunt told her about us and she literally didn't look at anybody else. She just like perused her blog. She's like, Yeah, here's our family. And they gave us a call and we flew down to Arizona the next day.
3: So I guess our blog did do something.
2: It did. It, it, <laughs> it helped her. You know, she looked at pictures, it was great. Now honestly, it was nothing short of a miracle because we had two at that time. We had a two and a one-year-old. It had taken about almost two years at that point well and there was four for uh potential adoptions to that point where we had been contacted by families and they chose someone else or there were agency so there were a couple this is the farthest we had gotten well we got to the actual birth
3: yeah i'm just saying it's funny because we got to the point near the end of those two that two year interim where we're like well you know this has been kind of hard
2: yeah and we're like
3: maybe just the two will be fine and it's really funny because after we made peace with that like you no know we'll just be grateful for the two that we have we'll just move forward with our lives and like literally the next week we got the phone call
2: it's true we had decided we weren't going to renew <laughs> two years was enough and there had been a lot of ups and downs it is it's hard to get your hopes up every time that you're contacted and interviewed and uh, We already had decided that we were, you know, maybe we're trying to do something that was beyond us. And then it was the next week that we got chosen for the twins. And they were born two weeks after that. So at 35 weeks in Arizona. At the time, I would have said that it was really difficult, that there were a lot of ups and downs. I didn't know what to expect. But now, looking back six years later, It was one of the smoothest adoptions that I have ever seen, but I didn't know that at the time. The fact that we went in there and I was able to be at the birth and that both babies were healthy and that we took them home 48 hours and that the birth parents actually signed the paperwork in the hospital, like it was incredibly smooth and it only took us a week to get permission to cross state boundaries which now being in foster care I know can take like nine months I have no idea what strings she pulled to make that so fast it was very
1: smooth
3: and then the next twist
2: oh I know right six weeks later we found out we were very unexpectedly pregnant and it was terrifying because Hiram's birth like I had straight up PTSD I still do like it was hard and I wasn't sure if we were going to make it, if she was going to be alive. But during that two years with the twins, I had some crazy health stuff. And it actually like completely changed how I ate. I lost like 85 pounds. I just did all this health stuff. And that's what I attribute it to. It was still the hardest nine months of my life. And I ended up spending the last bit in the hospital again. But... I delivered a baby at 37 weeks, who was perfectly fine. Like it was the latest I'd ever gone with a child. But at that point we were extra sure that we didn't want to do that again. And we made sure that it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are with our five and Joseph leaves the Air Force and we moved to Arizona. It's funny because it happened to both of us in the same week. We had friends who had done foster care. And at this time, Ruth was three and a half. So not super young, but to us, it felt old. We had had, our oldest was three when Ruth was born. So we had five and three and a half years. It was really close together. And so by the time she was three and a half, I was like, oh, I'd had five kids in this time. Like I wasn't overwhelmed anymore. We were doing well. So we just kind of decided one night that our family wasn't done and that we wanted to foster. We had thought about it for a long time. We were very open to adoption. We had gone through the foster care classes in Wyoming to see if it was something we wanted. So it wasn't like an all of a sudden decision. It was just the switch flipped from it's not time to it's time. So at that point, we needed to find an agency. And we literally just went with the ones that our friends had done because they had nothing but good things to say about them. And so we contacted them and we had good experiences. So we felt like it was a solid good enough and that it was a good direction. It was really cool how it worked out. Another one of those where I have no explanation. This was October and it's supposed to take about six months to be approved. But we were really on top of our paperwork. Background checks were easy because of the Air Force. When you handle nuclear bombs, they they do a pretty thorough check. So we were able to use that. And so Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we put in our application. So it's like six weeks later. So we got our stuff done in record time. That was pretty good on us. We had a lot of 20 hours of training and we just did it. When when we are, when we decided to do something, we jump in. Both feet. <laughs> right. We're the same um, way. <laughs> <right. laughs> and they told us it'll be about eight weeks after you send in your application to be approved by the state. So that's what we were expecting. Thinking. Yeah, expecting. Like, great, it'll be sometime next year. Apparently, they had had a huge influx of kids right before the holiday. And they didn't want, they had like 50 kids in the placement center. Doesn't even hold that many. The one in Phoenix holds maybe 25 and the Phoenix, the Thanksgiving holiday was the next day. And so we turned in our application at two, we got emergency approval at four. Like they literally just went through our application and approved it right on the spot. And we had a baby by seven o'clock.
0: Holy yeah. cow.
2: It was like <laughs> Same day. so crazy. And it happened to be a newborn. We were licensed zero to four. We wanted someone younger than ruth but that was our only stipulation but it happened to be that they had a call for a newborn who had just come out of the hospital and we went and picked him up
3: yeah just went and picked up a baby <laughs> it
2: really was it was so weird you like go down to the, the phoenix placement center and it's unmarked you have to get the address from a case manager and you can't share it to anybody there's a gate, a code to get in and then you pass security and then you give them their ID and then you can go back and there's a room with just your child and you like sign the paperwork and do the interview. And so it's very, it, it felt like I was in a spy movie or something. It's very locked down. It's like, am I supposed to be doing this? And it didn't help that it was dark. I don't know. <laughs> then we picked him up and that's where we got our first foster child. Six months later, not even, five months later, we are in the middle of COVID lockdown. We were on a camping trip that weekend. And we're supposed to stay overnight, Sunday, Saturday to Sunday. And we had the distinct impression that we should come home that night. And so we did. Like, okay, like, that's not a big deal. Well,
3: cool. We were coming off the mountain and you, text, you texted our agency mm-hmm. rep.
2: Yeah, I was like, hey, we're coming home early, just so you know, because we're supposed to keep them informed, right? And it was Sunday morning. They called us. They said, hey, we know you have the bed space and the car space, because that's on all of our applications, right? You're only approved for one bed. Can we approve you for two so that you can take another placement? Because what happened is during lockdown, nobody was reunifying, nobody was getting approved to foster and no but at the same time the abuse rate in the homes had actually risen and so there was a disproportionate amount of foster parents so they were like literally trying to find foster parents to do more and we said okay you could take another one
3: and i was working from home at the time so two parents there we were feeling good
2: and yeah and so we said yeah we'll take another one and that night, again, another call for a newborn, which once again was weird. They always tell you going through training, newborns are rare. Do not ever expect that. But then we've got the two, and we go through the next year almost, and our first placement reunifies. And that was actually a really good experience. Like, we, prepared for it we had a good relationship with his father we were really proud of the work that he had done going through his sobriety and getting a job and a stable home so it actually ended up being a really good experience despite the fact that there was a lot of grief from saying goodbye to this child that you had parented for 16 months
3: and i really close like i feel like i had a really close special bond and still do with him i don't know he was like he's like one of those babies that were just like laughing as soon as like he could make sounds. Yeah he's a happy guy. Yeah. And like he would, like I'd play games with him and like he would just laugh. Like if there's a favorite parent, not that there was, but I was definitely the favorite parent. <laughs> <laughs> so that one that one was
2: that was that was a rough week. Yeah. Cause
3: yeah, like even though you know like, like mentally you know like all right this isn't my kid.
2: The goal is always reunification. Yeah, but at the
3: same time, the kind of agency when they were telling us when they first called us about you know this this first placement, like oh yeah, this is like a done deal. You'll probably be
2: adopting him. Like, but what happened is his dad got taken into ICE custody. Luckily, was not deported because he had children in the states. But during that time, he got sober and he was able to keep it up. So yeah. it really was just like a twist of fate. And so you're proud of him, but it was so hard to say goodbye, mostly because I didn't know if we would ever see him again. And that's hard because you, you try to maintain a relationship, but the situations they're in, phone numbers are changing all the time. Houses are changing all the time. They lived an hour and a half away in, you know, North Phoenix, so you had to just come to terms with the fact that you may never see him again and he probably would not remember you and that was hard
3: well to that point we had a good enough relationship with the father that a week after was it a week two weeks yeah it was a couple of weeks a couple of weeks after we asked if we could see you know just see him just spend an hour or two with him at the park and you know graciously he said yeah you know you can come come see him and so he came, picked them up, and I think that was harder than saying goodbye the first time because, you know, they're so young at that age.
2: Like he didn't know us at all. It was yeah, really
3: sad. yeah. It was it was all all the things TV's. we would do. Yeah, all the things we would do together. All like the little games we had. He wasn't responsive to him. I think that was actually a lot harder for me than saying goodbye the first time. And it, nothing was wrong. Like this is just how it was. For, you know, it's how it should be. You know. He should be bonding with his family. He should be, I, but you know, it was still, I think of that whole process up to that point, that was probably the toughest day for me. Cause it was just like, yep, you won't remember me. So yeah, that was that that was probably the toughest day for me, thinking back there. So and then after that, we didn't really
2: Yeah, we were down to one, but we had decided because we had been homeschooling because of COVID. Like, you know what, one was a lot easier. So we decided not to fill that second bed and went through the summer. And then our second placement had a brother born. But we were told family was gonna take him because it's a different dad. It opens up new family members. So he had a grandma that took placement of him. So we weren't expecting a baby. But two weeks, when he's two weeks old, we got a call that family placement wasn't working out. They needed to put him into care. Would we take his brother? Of course we said yes. We wanted to keep siblings together. We could do two again. And so we said yes. So we had the 15 month old in the new ward. And then three days later, after this, we get a call from DCS again, that he was back in care and that we could we take him. He was our son, so of course he said yes. But
3: <laughs> <laughs> then in like a was it a week? Oh, within
2: how- a couple of days, we yeah. went from trauma. six to eight kids, and that was hard. Mostly because all like we hadn't dealt with a lot of trauma behaviors because we had getting calls from newborns, right? So it was like drug withdrawals and things like that that we were used to, but then when our first guy came back into care. He had all of the trauma behaviors. He wasn't sleeping. He was screaming. He had attachment issues. He just all the things. A lot, and of, so, a
3: lot of neglect.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And abuse. It
3: that was, We didn't
2: know was going on. Um, the,
3: he would just go catatonic sometimes. Like it was he, hard.
2: His fight or flight was really strong.
3: Yeah. If you heard a loud noise, you just stop and like, he would he wouldn't move. You had to come like come to him kind of pick him up, calm him down.
2: So that was that the first couple of weeks because of course your newborn isn't sleeping and then our toddler isn't sleeping. And so that was a very interesting
3: hard, it was very hard. <laughs> <It> was. <laughs> interesting. <It was> <laughs> scientifically. <laughs> No, it was, it was emotionally
2: hard
3: (laughs) and physically hard.
2: But here we are four months later and he's doing fantastic. Like he, all of his, all of his behaviors now are just two-year-old behaviors. Things that kids do, like he's sleeping well, he's eating well. It really took, it took probably three months to get to that point though, before he was comfortable being back here and new routines and visits where that's always kind of hard for little kids where they, they see their biological family and then they come back to their foster family. And so that's that's been good to see how he's improved. And when the judge got the case back, he decided to move it straight to severance because it was his second time in care, but it was dad's third strike. So that's nice to know that he'll have a uh, stable support and home from here on out. Yeah, that's, that's
3: that's how our family has gotten to be at this
2: point. Right, <laughs> and our, our second, so number seven, the second foster, his case has moved to severance as well. So really it's the little baby that we'll see what happens. It's only four months and typically Arizona tends to take a lot longer where you know domestic infant adoption be finalized at six months. Whereas this, they don't even consider, if it's like cut and dry, they'll do six months. Like, oh, neither parent has been seen, they both abandoned, we'll do it six months, right? Ours, the earliest we've had severance is 19 months or like even gone to severance. And then it's like nine months after that. By the time you've done the severance trials and the adoption hearings and everything. So it takes longer.
0: So nine years, eight kids. <laughs>
1: right. And so your three foster sons, you're planning on adopting the first two at this point? Yes. Okay. Yes.
3: Cool. Some some point in the future.
1: <laughs> It'll be a good year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for sharing that is like so twists and turn. I I have a coworker who likes to use the phrase plot twist. Um, And I felt like that could have been said about five times through your story. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine living it was crazy.
2: I sometimes I feel really blessed that you can't see the end from the beginning because I think I would have been really overwhelmed and maybe not chosen it at the time. But as you're living it, you know, you just take it, each new plot twist.
3: Yeah, that way you don't expect the overwhelm. It just comes on at certain moments of time.
0: (laughs) I mean, you kind of got to expect it, right?
2: Yeah. Things are going really well right now with all the kids. That's That's awesome. awesome. Uh, And you know how it is. Even what was most surprising to me is that, I got postpartum anxiety slash postpartum depression with all eight didn't matter if it was biological adopted foster all eight and I think that's just a combination of like lack of sleep lack of sleep poor nutrition overwhelm a lot of crying (laughs) so that was actually really surprising to me I thought that that would not happen if I did not give birth
1: and it still did and how have your older kids done adjusting every time a new foster child joins your family?
3: They love it. Yeah,
1: our kids
2: love kids. It's been so interesting because with each one, we've asked them, Are you okay with this? Is this something we can handle as a family? And they've overwhelmingly said, Yes, they love it. The hardest by far was when our little guy went back into care. And it was really good. For learning, like we were reading books on grief with kids and figuring out how to talk to them and how to remember him and what was the best way to handle it. And obviously, as parents, we don't know if it was us or if it's just we have resilient kids, but they seemed to handle it pretty well. We talked about them a lot. So that was, that was the hardest part was the reunification, but they seemed to be resilient and to handle it.
3: I think they have like this kind of like sense of pride with how big our family is. Like I'll be out with the five and like, oh, wow, there's five. Like you have a really large family. And Lydia will be like, but we have three more, you know? like, <laughs> And the, the twins will ask like, you know, are we getting another baby? You know, so. Yeah,
2: they ask that all the time.
3: Like, what no, are we getting, <laughs> where are we getting a new baby? <laughs>
2: So they ask that a lot and they, they, all the kids want a bigger family. I think we're done, but.
3: I think it's interesting how our biological children have started playing stories about how they were, how they have tummy mommies or how they were adopted. They're kind of like feeling left out. It's
2: true. Our, Our youngest biological, Ruth, who's five, talks all the time. I had a birth mom then you were my birth mom Uh, (laughs) like trying to like somehow make it make sense right? and then sometimes she just gets sad because everyone tends to get like gifts from their birth family and she doesn't (laughs) like uh, that's a hard one to explain sometimes
0: how do you balance that or how do you maybe help them understand that
2: we there's a lot of talks because even with the five who do have birth families gifts and attention vary by family and so it's really been it's been a hard lesson and that life is not fair and that this is their relationship with their birth family that we want to foster which that explanation has really only worked with our older two who are old enough to get that with the others
3: really brook actually have been kind of they, they don't really
2: yeah they don't noticed it
3: difference they're, yeah i don't
2: know why it's like hasn't bothered them it's bothered ruth by far the most and the older two but they got it they're like oh yeah this is their birth family i feel like that explanation worked and then ruth has just been sad
3: i mean it's sporadic like sporadic like well and she's know. five right yeah yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. so it's just being and the truth is, it's really
3: like, why don't I get
2: toys? Right. Really it is. <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is, with the three who get, because their biological family will send gifts home from visits and things, and we just tell Ruth to wait till they're done playing with it, and then they get it. Like the boys tend to lose interest eventually, so she's had enough patience that it's worked, but she still wishes she had a birth family a lot.
0: I think when our kids were really little and that was happening a little bit, we would say, okay, the first day, it's your gift. Tomorrow, it's the family's.
2: We do that with birthdays. It's a 24-hour rule, but then you need to share. Nice. That's one of the hard things about being in a big family is they have a couple like special gifts. We tell them, like, you get this drawer. If it fits in this drawer, nobody can touch it but for the most part, things are communal, which works more often than not, but there are times when it's tough.
3: Yeah, how, how do you, you know, teach that kind of principle of stewardship, like, like you have stewardship over this, but it's still the families.
2: <laughs> We're still working. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, you there
3: know, it, Melissa and I are still kind of working out our individual philosophies on that. So, but (laughs) she's at home more. So I
1: just
0: (laughs) kind (laughs) of got to go with it sometimes. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. just
1: just go with it. (laughs) So a question that we get asked pretty often by our listeners is how do you know if agency adoption or foster to adopt is the right route for your family? What would you tell them?
2: We get asked this a lot. And I really just lay out kind of the pros and cons of each. Foster care is, not only is it cheaper, you get paid to do it. So Arizona, we get paid $700 per child, which really, that was a deciding factor for us because taking care of more children does mean more expense. Like, well, at least this offsets the extra expense that we're getting, so we don't feel like we're hurting our other children by having a lower income to child ratio. So that was a deciding factor for us. The obviously our domestic infant adoption, as far as adoptions go, was quite cheap. The way that it worked out is we found a birth mother not through an agency. And so we just hired a lawyer in Arizona. We hired a lawyer in Wyoming and then we had the agency do the finalization and the whole thing was about $14,000 which for two kids was very good
3: right and then 4000 <laughs> that was subsidized by the air force
2: yeah the air force had adoption subsidies which was really cool
3: yeah so it's really you have to pick your heart do you uh, do you want a cheaper you know a, a subsidized experience but that comes a lot with a lot of strings attached to it a lot of unknowns right you don't know it's going to end up in adoption the
2: goal is always reunification
3: yeah. And so you have to step into that space, being willing to love the child as your own, but being willing to support reunification so you know. If that's the hard and experience like they're both hard there's something I think enlarging about that experience of just being willing to love someone if it's for a day or for a week. I don't know. It, it, it's it's really interesting experience, not knowing when they're going to go. So, so you just love them as much as you can for for that day. And then with domestic adoption, you know, it's it's more expensive, but it's perhaps a little more sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> some, oh, oh, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> you, you don't know when, but it seems to be like the more money you can throw at a domestic adoption, the more your probability increases.
2: That's <laughs> um, true. And at the time, my decision was based off of, I want to have a child from the beginning of their life, which looking back was probably not the best way to make a decision. I've learned a lot more since then, but it was what we did at the time. And that was a deciding factor for me. And I just decided we were gonna make the money work, right? But like I mentioned before, secondary, because we did go through the foster care classes when we realized how much time cases took. I don't think we can do this while we're in the Air Force.
3: Yeah, no, that's the thing, like, what's your timeline? I mean, well, again, adoption, domestic adoption still take. Yeah, while, they take but... a
2: while, but you don't have the kid the whole time. Yeah. So the hardest part for us is, okay, if we moved, we'd have to get a new home study. That was the hardest part with the domestic. And we're still waiting. There's a lot of work. So honestly, I like what Joseph said. You choose your heart. And we've chosen both. And they both have had pluses and minuses. And it really comes down to what's best for your family and emotional needs at the time.
0: There's no wrong choice. Thinking about when you adopted the twins to so your domestic infant adoption, from the time that you matched, knowing that you were going to adopt and the time that kids were born, what did you do to connect with birth family to start fostering a relationship? And then ultimately, kind of what has that journey looked like uh, to this point?
2: It's really progressed. But at the time, so we were matched and there was about two weeks. Really at that time, I went to a couple of doctor's appointments. We did do a family dinner so that her, because she was very close to her family, could get to know our family. Um, but it was really tough because their family didn't want her to place, but at the same time, didn't feel like they could take the babies. And so they were in a really rough spot where they were... Honestly, kind of grappling with it and were they were upset, and that rightfully so. Like, they that's grief that they were going through. So, we really just did what we could to show them our love. And we did mostly for the birth parents, there were some things that we bought with their names on it, and we did footprints and matching blankets just so she would have, I don't know if she ever kept any of them or anything, but we did it, right? I felt like that's where I wanted to come as an adoptive parent. Though originally they were supposed to be boy-girl twins. And so everything I gave with their names on it was not right because they came out to be identical girls, which in their defense is really hard to see when things are that squished. So then I ended up making new necklaces and things for her. (laughs) With their actual names and we honored they're both named after she chose both of their first names and we stuck with those names and their middle names are after her her first and middle name and so we did that to honor her choices and what she would like
3: i think it's interesting that you can do whatever you would like to do um but you can't force someone into a relationship and seeing the children has always caused their birth mother a lot of pain. And so you know we used to do annual we we'd drive down to Arizona to do an annual meal with them and they slowly just stopped contact and told us, hey, you know, if we want contact we'll let you know.
2: Yeah we did a lot the first year and then it was like to the second year and now at this point we actually live just about 20 minutes away from them now and they've requested no contact. But we are friends on Facebook and they like our pictures. So I know that they know that the girls are alive and they're happy and they are healthy. And to me, that's I still consider that an open adoption despite the fact that we haven't really seen them within the last two years. And I'll send her Mother's Day and birthday cards and that pretty much is our relationship right now. Facebook likes, likes, and birthday cards.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too, like you mentioned in the beginning, you can't force a relationship, but I think it's important in the adoption community where if we've promised that in the beginning, or if that is what we uh, started with to keep the door open, right? And and I think yeah. what you are doing is, is a great example of that. Not trying to force something that they maybe don't want at this point, but know that, that relationship is there anytime they want or need it yeah and the
2: most comforting part to me is when Millie and Brooke do have questions that I have their birth parents contact information because they're going to want to know what they were thinking what was happening and at least I know where to find them and that was comforting to me that when they decide they want to foster that relationship I can at least have the first step.
3: Dora's I guess from our perspective, the door is wide open, and there's just lots of love and understanding. It's it's a it's a mixed bag of emotions, you know. It's it's a very difficult. You sit in, I guess, intention of grief and pain and joy, and you know, it's just it's an interesting place to be in.
1: So what do you wish that you could tell yourself at the very beginning of your family growing journey, like before you adopted, before you started foster care, what would you tell yourself if you could go back?
3: Don't worry about it. <laughs> yes.
1: Maybe, you're Maybe right. it,
2: it all works out in the end. And I tell myself <laughs> that now too, because so they've all had so many ups and downs where I'm like, it's happening, it's not happening, it's happening, it's not happening, even now in foster care where it's like, oh, this random family member is coming up, or this is, yeah, there's so much thrown at you. I think the, just don't worry and let God handle it. And then just like,
3: hey, it's going to be hard and you can feel the feelings. You know, don't, don't, don't be scared of, don't be scared of the heart. You're strong enough to feel sorrow. You're strong enough to feel grief. You're strong enough to feel attachment you know, and it's all in all, you're going to learn and grow, and you're going to appreciate those experiences, even though they're hard to get through sometimes.
0: So from the beginning, we've talked about foster care and how the goal is always reunification. Um, How do you balance relationships with biological parents when you know that reunification is unlikely, or now you know it's not going to happen for some of them. How, how did, What did those relationships look like and how do you handle
3: that? I think the biggest takeaway from foster uh, parent training is an ability to hold space and compassion for how you know these individuals have come to the place that they are. And I think that's really key is having a great deal and a great amount of compassion and empathy for for these people who are doing the best they know or have the capability of doing and just really seeing them as you know they're not villains they're not bad guys they're not good guys they're just people trying to do the best they can and and right now this is kind of where they're at and just being able to hold space for that
2: there has been a lot of empathy realizing the cyclical generations of addiction and the poverty cycle and how these individuals have come to where they are almost by society's fault. But at the same time, knowing that we need to set boundaries to protect our most vulnerable. So that kind of going into that with the empathy, we literally sat down and said, how do we wanna show up as foster parents? Because you will get advice all over the map from people who only speak through case managers, they don't know names, addresses, numbers, even an email, like nothing. There's people on the other side who are like, oh yeah, they reunified and we have dinner every week. And like we saw all of it. But what we wanted is how do we show up? And we decided that we were okay. We shared our phone numbers and we met in person for courts. And sometimes we will supervise visits if case aids aren't available. So that helped a lot with fostering a relationship is because we actually got to meet in person and talk and then they can see that we love their child and that like we're not scary because a lot of times they'll get foster, what am I trying to say? Biological parents will lose a sense of control and that's when things start to get nasty. There'll be DCS reports or things happen at visits. So we wanted to show them that we were on their team and that we loved their child. So like for our first little guy, his parents were incarcerated for the first while of his life. And so I kept uh, monthly pictures everywhere we went, ended up making, first time I saw him like this big chapbook that he didn't, we don't speak the same language, but it just had pictures of him for the first 16 months of his life. And he loved it. it, was just crying. And I was like, yes, was the right choice. Now he has no holes in his son's um, baby years. He can see all these things that he missed. And now I have all three of their biological parents numbers. Like today, all three boys went in for well checks. I sent them pictures. I sent them updates on what was happening, what vaccines they got, like all the different things. Sometimes they'll come with us to the appointments, but that's dropped off. It's kind of like when they're feeling like they want to. Tomorrow we are doing, we are supervising a visit with one of our guy's grandma. And so we're still fostering that in hopes to still foster that after the adoption is finalized, because we've deemed that she's a safe individual around him. We, We do kind of go out of our way to make sure that they have relationships with the people that we choose. But we're also deliberate. There's a couple people that we've decided that they're not safe or not good because there's a lot of behaviors or something afterwards for the kids. So we just try to pick and choose based on what feels like love.
3: And sometimes love means boundaries because you need to protect the child and it protects them from doing something that would have repercussions about their ability to maintain relationships after. And so sometimes love is boundaries, sometimes love is driving for a visit even though there's not a case aid to do it
2: um yeah we've driven a long way sometimes
3: so yeah and and it's a case-by-case basis and i think you just have to kind of have a a guiding principle i guess like we we just want to you know we just ask ourselves what is love and we try to do that we don't always do it perfectly Um,
2: (laughs) nope
3: sometimes we kind (laughs) of grumble underneath our breath about it but (laughs) We, we do we, we try our best that's
0: awesome I love
1: that yeah so what are some of the different ways that you've tried to educate friends and family about adoption especially with all of these different ways of building your family how you've adopted domestic infant adoption um, and done foster care and foster to adopt those are such different worlds right and so how have you addressed that with friends and family who might not understand
2: or we have a lot of patience with the really stupid questions?
1: <laughs> like,
2: do they miss their real mom? Do they know so we get like, do they know that you're not their real mom? If I tell them they're adopted, do they know that? Like, just things <laughs> that strangers have asked or well-meaning people where we understand where they're coming from. It's just, they don't know. And I can talk to them, right? So we, once we get past the, I'm going to be offended at the questions phase. We've done our best to build a lot of empathy because there is a lot of upfront prejudice against birth parents, that they're in terrible situations that they couldn't take care of their kids, that it's their fault because they're addicted to drugs or whatever it is. And so trying to be an advocate for birth parents and decisions that they made is an important part to us.
3: It's funny because I feel like advocating, in order to advocate for foster care, advocate for um, adoption, you have to advocate for compassion, empathy for those who choose to place, or for those who are in a situation where they can't care for their own. So I guess that's how we we kind of approach, approach it is we try to I always like to take a step back and say, oh, you know, we bringing the backstory and kind of bringing it home to they are doing the best they can and you know we're just glad to help be part of the system that can help them learn to help them cope learn new life skills so we usually try to deflect to to compassion and everything. And then, I and Melissa said it much more often than I just <laughs> tried to fumble uh, through. <laughs>
0: no, I think it, kind of what you were just saying made me reflect back on what you said earlier, where it was like these kids and ultimately their biological parents just need love. And whether that's for a day or for 16 months or for 18 years, they need love that probably hasn't been in their life the way that it could be. Right. I love that. You kind of go back to empathy and just focus on, hey, you know what? I can't control the decisions they've made or the decisions they're making, but I can control the way that I treat them and the way, and the love that
3: I give to to this person. Yeah, the way I think about them, the way I perceive them,
2: mm-hmm. I think
3: it all kind of begins there. Yeah.
2: Another thing I feel like I explain a lot is domestic adoption is not better than foster care adoption that there is trauma for all five of them, that we've had to take a lot of parenting classes. And if I could go back, that's the one thing I would have changed before we did our domestic adoption, is to be much more trauma informed than I was. I was somehow blissful that there would be no trauma since it was at birth and they won't remember it. And that is wrong, that is so wrong. But I do think we've done a lot of preparation to this point that we are learning how to handle things much better than we have. Because we just understand it
3: better.
2: (laughs) Right. We're still like literally, I have foster care, foster parent college classes on like, okay, this thing is coming up and I don't know how to handle it. And funny enough, most of my trauma classes have been for the twins and not for the foster boys. And I was surprised by that. And then I embraced it. And now things are in a much better place as I like figured out how to do that.
0: That's great. Yeah. Education is really key. Well, we have just a few more questions before we wrap up. Many of the listeners that listen to our podcast are contemplating or are just starting looking at foster care. You talked a little bit about what you would do differently, kind of looking back, but is there... Anything else, maybe looking at the very beginning of your journey in foster care that you wish you had known in the very beginning? I know that it's, a, it's this process of becoming more and more educated, but what maybe advice would you give those that are just starting that journey?
2: I feel like something that was very, that worked. And I think one of the reasons we were able to handle reunification, even though it was very difficult, is that we did not go in with any expectations. If you go in expecting to adopt, then reunification can destroy you. And that's happened to a couple of our friends where they fostered one reunification, they were done. They couldn't do it anymore. So I think going in with no expectations helps things a little bit more. And we both have been in therapy for the last couple of years. And learning how to cope with emotions, how to cope with change, because there's a lot like our our dumpster fire cases will change daily and you can't give too much into them or let it affect your daily life. And so like learning how to cope. So I think that helped a lot, too.
3: I think education is important. I think learning to manage your own mind is probably the most important part. You can't control other people and you can't like guess their motives or guess what's gonna happen. And I think that's the hardest part about it is you have to be okay not knowing what's going on. (laughs) And so it's really, you just just have to love each day as it comes and be willing to embrace the hard, and it's, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest thing. Cause I, you know, our agency, they they learned what our, they asked us why we were wanting to foster. Like, oh, well, we want to foster adopt. And all of a sudden like foster to adopt was like the easiest thing it happens all the time. And that's what we were told. And all of our cases would go straight from foster to adoption. It was like these, and looking back like these overly simplistic, and, you know, and he's trying to grow and, and, you know, a, a network of foster parents. So I understand where he's coming from, but I definitely entered into foster care believing like this was gonna be a, you know, case closed in like six months, you know, like, <laughs> and like, is it it's just the way he talked about it. I think that's the very rare exception. Expect that you won't know what's gonna happen and you're just gonna have to take one day as a <laughs>
2: Flexibility is the key to air power. Yeah.
0: <laughs> being comfortable with ambiguity and just yeah being okay yeah. to walk into the dark.
3: Yeah <laughs> know that you won't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I feel like there was a lot of mind management and coping mechanisms being foster parents because when people get scared or out of control, they will turn on those closest to them or things people they feel like they can hurt. There have been times in court that we have been, our names have been dragged in the mud or there's been untrue things said or things that we've been accused of at visits despite our best intentions, right? And learning that healthy ways to handle those situations that are logical, that bring closure to everybody and not being defensive or offended.
1: You guys have incredible mindsets. My goodness. I'm very impressed.
0: It's all that life. Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we might need to get your therapist's information. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Uh, All right. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about?
3: It's a viable way to grow your family either way. And it's all hard, but it's so, so worth it. Um,
2: I feel like we made it sound really hard. That's because it is. I, mean, I would um, 100 do it over again. Yeah. Even knowing what I know. Yeah,
3: I, I'd rather come to a situation knowing that it's gonna be hard, and it's gonna be challenging, and that's why, at the end of the day, you feel like you've done something worthwhile.
2: Doing. It's true. It feels really worthwhile, and we are both invigorated and fulfilled
3: for sure. Man, so, I feel like you're you're doing something good.
2: Making an actual difference.
3: So, go adoption. Go be
2: parents. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I love how authentically you painted the picture, and I think that that's what we all need to hear, right? We need to know that there are beautiful things that can happen, but that at times and most of the time, it takes a lot of hard work and of the blood sweat and tears of difficult moments right yeah well thank you so much for being on the podcast we really really appreciate it and yeah we just love you guys thank you yeah. oh man you keep
3: doing what you're doing
2: right thank you
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Open Adoption Project and a big thank you to our friends Melissa and Joseph for talking with us and sharing their story. We loved hearing from them. I thought there were so many helpful things that they talked about. Uh, Something we get asked about a lot and that we think about a lot is how to handle gift giving with different levels of openness, right? And I loved hearing their thoughts on that and how they address that with their family dynamic. I also really appreciated hearing their thoughts on the importance of being trauma informed as adoptive parents and knowing how to help our kids cope with the trauma that comes with being adopted.
0: Yeah. One thing that really stood out to me and that I appreciated was how they advocated for biological parents in um, some of the foster situations that they talk about, just, you know, no one's perfect and being patient and understanding and empathetic in ways that we can be to these parents especially in the foster care situation um, knowing that they love their kids and they might not be in the best spot right now but giving them the benefit of the doubt and advocating for the biological parents also I think that that's uh, something that is going to stick with me from this episode
1: yeah I love that too
0: Again, a huge thanks to Melissa and Joseph for sharing with us on this episode. And to each of you, thank you for being our listeners. We're so grateful that we get to be in this space and to help different voices in the adoption community be heard. And we've mentioned this before, but all along the way, we felt like we're learning a lot as we go through this. And we hope that that's your experience as well.
1: Thanks so much for being here and we'll be back next week.